Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Joshna Maharaj. Today on Hot Plate, label wars over meat and cheese, let voters eat cake, the battle over borscht, and dining in domes. Thanks for listening. Hello, Laura. Hello, Joshna. Laura is joining us today as a guest host. Laura Brejo is a food reporter for the National Post. She earned a culinary arts certificate and professional fromagère certificate from George Brown College. Laura graduated with a BA honors from Ryerson University's RTA School of Media and a BA in Linguistics and Anthropology from the University of Victoria. She has an interest in the cultural significance of food and foodways and believes in the importance of building culinary skills and access to healthful food for all. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I, I love uh, you are a, a well-schooled lady. Uh, <laughs> have very similar ideas, I think, about food and food systems. Absolutely. Uh, so we're going to jump right in. We have some really interesting things to talk about. Um, first up is this piece about, uh, you brought this to the conversations, piece about the European Parliament. Uh, tell me tell me what you thought, what you, what you found there. Well, I find it so interesting that the conversation around meat substitutes, and this is not just in, in Canada, it's in the US and, and the UK, has really centered around language. And um, in this case, the European Parliament voted to reject a farmer-backed uh, bid to ban the use of words like burger, sausage, steak uh, to describe plant-based foods. So, I mean, on the one hand, this was, uh, as some people, as some environmental advocates called it, a kind of uh, a win for common sense. But then on the other hand, the, uh, the, the lawmakers voted to kind of take a harsher stance when it came to dairy substitutes. So words like creamy, cream, yogurt-like, cheese-like. That is so, it's, it's a wild distinction, right? It doesn't seem, I can't seem to make, couldn't seem to make sense of where this is coming from. From like the, the culinary gourmand inside of me has this, has, I can, I can get behind the like, well, it's not actually cheap. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I, I see it, right. I see it. I understand. Right. And the like MYLK and the, you know, cheese like product. And like, I get that. Um, but I, I'm, what do you think is behind this, this polarization? Right. Is, is there a gender thing happening there, I wonder? Well, I think that it's it's an interesting point. And I think that um, one of the best books that I think I've read on the topic is is no surprise, I guess. It's by Carol J. Adams. Um, but she wrote a, a brilliant book. She's she's written many, but one of them was called Burger. Okay. Uh, and she really like dives into a lot of these, um, topics around meat and meat eating. And, and just like you're saying the, the, um, gender politics right. of meat, but I, I find it interesting that, you know, the, the meat and dairy industries have really fixated on language for this. Um, because I, I really don't think anyone believes that consumers are confused, you know? Right. I agree. I agree. Um, it is really true. It's not like, it's not like someone's going to look at that and be like, and, and be like, oh, oh, I was mistaken. This is yeah. not, yes, uh, I agree. I wonder, I heard about, I heard about this in the context of cheese and the pushback on vegans calling their nut, their cultured nut loaf, <laughs> a cheese. And it was, it was interesting. And to me, the thing that it really seemed to, to drip of is the last sort of 
uh, before everything has gone through the clenched fist grab of the dairy industry to right. be like, uh-uh, this is ours. You ha- you want to do that? You got to call it something else. We right. Own this, right. Uh, I can't see. I can't seem to see around that. Right, because like the everyone, like the industry is only growing for these alternatives. So it does, it does how it does kind of reek of that last, last right. kick at it. And and, and, and it unfortunately just boils this down to a market share issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, yeah. With, I'm more interested in the philosophical. How do we name things? Where do names come from? What's this? You know, that is that's compelling to me. This the the idea of just you sort of protecting your. I mean, protecting your sales doesn't. It's not as compelling, let's say that. No, and that's what interested me too, is just like the polarization in the West um, around these topics. Uh, I, feel, I feel like people get so um, really passionate about issues of meat replacements. Um, mm-hmm. And when, you know, and, and again, going back to Carol J. Adams in that burger book, but she pointed out, it's not like beef has any ownership over right, uh, the patty right. format, right? Like lentil patties predate beef burgers. Yeah, I mean, that's not what it's about. Yeah. yeah. That is that is really fascinating to think uh, who, because uh, it's almost just like the race to pen a flag in the ground. Yeah, right? yeah, that's... Like we, Burger TM, right? Right. <laughs> is this, like we own this now. Uh, that is that really, really fascinating. And it... As I was considering this, I was reminded sort of on the other side of things, uh, that bit from the Irish court recently, sort of in the yes. last six weeks, right? They decided to disallow the Subway sandwich uh, chains from calling its bread bread. Yeah. yeah. High sugar content. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's sort of, it's sort of, it's this, the spirit is similar, just like on the other side of the argument. Right. Yeah. Uh, they're like, right? no, let's call it what this is. This is cake. <laughs> <laughs> This is a weird tuna sandwich on cable. That's exactly <laughs> it. Uh, and that is, it's fascinating, right? It is, it is, it's a bold move, right? Because pushing back against a global franchise is no joke. Um, and I actually haven't, I haven't seen anything about what Subway's response was. No, I haven't right? either. I, to, to the point of perhaps the earlier bit of this discussion, they're just going to call it as the starch boat. Or, you know, they'll come up with another name yeah. uh, and just be like, fine, we can't call it bread. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is it, right? I don't know that they're going to change their game. Because again, right, the mar- what the market says about how those those sandwiches are selling is not going to budge that at all. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the the meat alternatives, you know, I, I, I always think as well, like, Beyond Meat, Impossible Burger, their their Impossible Burger, you know, just launched their retail rollout in Canada. I think right. it was last week in uh, Sobeys stores, and and you know, prior to that in uh, select restaurants across the country. But so in Canada, this idea is still like it's been building over the past few years. But I think it's so important to recognize that this tradition of mock meats is is so vast and you know i was i was reading about the history in china for example and there are are records of monks eating tofu based yes. and the, the translation is imitation meat dish that's the name and dating back as as early as the song dynasty so that's the 10th century so right. i mean people getting um really bent out of shape about veggie burgers i mean i just think they need to uh have some perspective Yes, I agree. I I wondered a lot about this because I have uh, enjoyed the lemon the lemon chicken and the Peking, you know what I mean, and all yeah. these things at these Vietnamese restaurants, knowing that I have consumed zero meat. Yeah, uh, and the tradition of imitating meat mm-hmm. 
is super, super old. Um, it's true. You know, but I have to say, I would sooner have that, that Vietnamese lemon chicken over any, you know, any sort of tofurky uh, cat, like, I don't know. It's cashew bacon. It all, it somehow it seems like an extreme has been hit with what we're doing here. And one thing I thought was really interesting, just in terms of the stigma and that polarization, um, is there's there was a um, BBC reported about uh, how vegans are second only to people addicted to drugs in terms of the stigma they face. That was earlier this year. Wow. And those who abstain from meat for reasons of animal cruelty, uh, even more, even they're the most the most hated basically of, of all. So I think that really shows like, because there's, you know, you can, you can pick your example. There was blue heron creamery here in Canada, in Vancouver, who, you know, there was an, uh, some sort of anonymous complaint against them. And it just seems like it'll be one isolated case where, you know, the Canadian food inspection agency, you know, investigated and found that they could continue with their kind of cheese labeling. Um, But it just seems like all of these individual isolated cases are really blown out of proportion, I would say, in a sense, Mm. but because of this stigma. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense though. It does make a lot of sense. Um, And it's, and then I believe that there's a chicken and an egg story happening here, right? Because the stigma, a lot of people will say that the stigma comes from the way they feel uh, vegans behave in the world. Right. There's there's back and forth about the, you know, sanctimoniousness and moral authority and, you know, this, whereas I, I don't actually believe that all vegans play this game or, or behave like that. Um, but it's there is definitely the spirit of something feeling threatened and needing to be defended. OK, I think I think this is really interesting because um, this is what some Australian psychologists called the meat paradox. OK. And it's like our our appetite for meat kind of clashes or, or contradicts with our awareness, our knowledge that that animals have to die. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of cases suffer yes. in terms of, you know, I mean, there was that really great study that came out of the University of Guelph recently about uh, broiler chickens and huh? the conditions that they're raised in and how the fastest growing birds suffer the most. And, right. um, you know, so we're aware of all these things and even the comments on, I, I interviewed the researchers and even the comments on that story. I mean, some people said, Oh, the, the pain makes it taste better. You know, those are real <laughs> comments on that story. Wow. So there's something going on there, something psychological and something so deep. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the, the, like the hypocrisy in that knowledge I mean, I think that this is, um, someone wrote that it's like the, the hypocrisy, it was, it was Julia Shaw who wrote that, you know, hypocrisy uh, feels less bad to us when we feel like, oh, everyone's doing it. So it yeah. can't be that bad. Right. Uh, that's super, there's a lot happening here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> move, uh, but we really unpacked a ton. Uh, I'm going to keep thinking about this, uh, but this is it's really, really fascinating. Okay, Laura, so I found this story and then recipe for something called an election cake. Uh, and I had, I had never encountered this before. Uh, had you heard of it? You know what? Me neither. But this year was the first year I saw it. And one of my very favorite sourdough bakers, Sarah Owens, she okay. was she was baking the election cake. Oh. That was the first time I heard of it. It's uh, so for listeners, essentially, this is uh, I've seen it mostly uh, in the shape of a bunt, 
right? That nice sort of uh, angled, augmented round. Um, and it's bready, right? The, a few versions of recipes that I've seen have a bit of sourdough starter in them. Uh, others are yeasted. Uh, so there's a sort of bready vibe. Think like hot crust bunny, right? Hot crust bun plus cake is sort of where this is. Dried fruit. Um, and the version I saw had a whiskey glaze uh, around it, looking very sort of like a proper American bunt cake, right? Uh, but what, so the, the background story, though, is the idea that people were actually given a slice of this stuff at the polling station after they had cast their vote. And this, to me, is where things start getting really interesting, uh, right? There's there's divided um, thoughts about who actually served, like who was making the cake and whose intentions were offering the cake. If this was just uh, from the state, a sort of national, you know, uh, the precursor to the I voted sticker that they all wear now, yeah. uh, right? Just that little bit of de democratic triumph. Or if this was particular candidates looking to curry favor in the last moments, Right. I found it. I was reading about the history on Atlas Obscura after you you mentioned oh, cool. it, and um, as the the writer of of that article pointed out, like it was it was the women were baking these election cakes before they actually had the ability to vote themselves. So oh, goodness, yeah, the way the writer oh, put that, yeah, and so the writer Annie um, was was saying like that they were flexing the political power political power in the only way allowed to them at the time. Oh, that's so good. I love that a lot. Um, I, of course, went deep with a dreaming about the <laughs> idea that it was the state, right? And that we could bring this back um, because what better incentive to vote than a delicious piece of cake, right? And then the notion that every four years, bakers around the land would gather to do their civic duty to bake yeah. this cake, to prepare it for, you know, with as part of Elections Canada's, right? It, uh, the idea, I think, is so beautiful. Um, and the in the, the recipe that I found, they had originally posted it in 2012. And then they posted a little uh, addition in 2016. That was like, oh, God, I, I can't, you know, that was when Trump first got elected, right? They were like, oh, God, what happened? Uh, we have to change this cake. And then for <laughs> this year... The suggestion, the add-on suggestion was to pour a small glass of whiskey right over the hot <laughs> cake. Well, uh, I, think, I think, too, it's so cool because baking has been so much of a part of these last months leading up to the election with Bakers Against Racism, right. with their first amazing fundraiser, which made, raised millions of dollars it around really the world, yeah. and then their Bake the Vote their second go, I mean, it's just been amazing seeing all these people baking and baking being part of it and then learning about this election cake. It just all kind of comes together. It does, right? It does. And I found uh, some lovely stories about early intentions around bake sales, right? Because again, to your point, the bake sale was a was women's agency. That was the way women could generate some money and therefore find themselves a bit of power, right? Uh, one, one cupcake, one little biscuit at a time. Uh, but that's it. That's those are the parameters that were off that were there. And so they worked within them. Uh, I think it's it's so yeah. cool too. Um, the fact that this was a community effort, like you mentioned, like imagining these cakes happening all around Canada, for example, yeah. like different communities starting them, but they were so big back in the day that they had to be baked in communal ovens. Like they were they were huge. Oh my God, this whole thing just makes my heart race. The thought of the <laughs> communal effort around cooking and that connected to and have that be so connected to civic duty yeah yeah right? it's amazing uh, and, and an exercise of democracy it just i mean look i'm i'm clinging for hopefulness 
uh, in a very intense, heavy moment. So perhaps this is, you know, this is a bit extra sweet because my heart is hurting, but it, uh, it, 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 I love the idea too, that this, it's not just somebody's dream. This is in fact the way things used to be. Yeah. And, you know, funnily enough, um, a friend from Melbourne just sent me a t-shirt with a democracy sausage on it. And so I had no idea that in Australia, um, if you cast your ballot, you leave the polling station with a sausage. <laughs> and isn't isn't uh, voting mandatory by law? Yeah, yeah. So it's not even really to sweeten the deal, right? right? And people are going to be going anyway, but you get a sausage anyway. <laughs> this is it. This is and and like it's such it's like from my perspective, doing grassroots level community food animation. Right. We know that the best way to ensure attendance is to have something delicious for people when they get there. Right. And get this. I was looking at the history. And in 2016 in Australia, there were almost 2000 recorded sausage sizzles and bake sales (laughs) at the polls. Come on. I I love this (laughs) a lot. I I know that we are overdue for election reform to the actual protest, <laughs> but I'm like, while we've opened that can to rethink it here, why don't well, we add the cake and yeah, add the cake back in? My goodness. Add the cake and the sausage, 100%. Okay, Laura, we're going to talk borscht. Love it. Uh, I, I also love it. Um, do you have thoughts about what makes a good borscht over a not so good borscht? Oh, geez. That's a tough one. My first thought is like, my my first thought is like really good beef broth. Yeah. I've understood that the magic of a borscht is that, that beady, almost, you know, earthy flavor of the beet with the sweetness plus really good beefy broth flavor, right? Because that's, I think the way the mamas and the grandmamas would have made it. A good Uh, foundation. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that also gives the right, richness and mouthfeel because you know a beet especially a you know a cooked boiled beet has that wateriness that doesn't actually blend up super nicely so i think that a rich you know almost bone brothy kind of thing helps to fill that open space and i think the color just how vibrant it is right i think that's one of the things that especially like when you want to make a borscht winter time i made a clear one actually last christmas eve and it was such a vibrant red um even with all of the vegetables uh strained out um, but I also have to say that I think the sour cream is key as well. I agree. The dollop of sour cream is yeah. a move. Uh, and this, I've understood this from food of, of this part of the world. Nothing needs to leave without, it's just like in the Indian kitchen, nothing leaves the kitchen without a blanket of fresh coriander, <laughs> right? I think in the Eastern European kitchen, nothing leaves without a dollop of sour cream. Uh, so there's a, this interesting story about a, a Ukrainian chef who is pushing for borscht to be declared an intangible part of Ukraine's heritage. Uh, and this, I thought, really fascinating. So he had heard, like, just from his pals, uh, and I think about some place in the U.S., that borscht was being described as a Russian soup. And he was not into it and decided he wanted to set the record straight and claim this for his people to the tune of like talking to UNESCO. Like he, you know what I mean? Has gone deep into this and that these, these perennial arguments about heritage and Genesis on dishes on food is something that I love. Uh, I love watching it. The great, the great homeless debate obviously is, is one of the tops of the lists here, right? Who, made it where did it come from and the thing uh, like eastern europe is similar to the middle east in that it is such a hotly contested piece of land and that we are constantly changing where we draw the lines yeah 
You know, and I wonder if if the this perception of the soup has something to do with the fact that in Canada we have such a strong Ukrainian community. Mm. Because I honestly, I, you know, I read this, the the story in the in the New York Times about this con- contentious subject, right. and I thought to myself, you know, I don't know if if I would have identified it as a Russian soup to begin with. Right, it's true. I agree. I don't know that I would have either. Yeah. Uh, right. And so that led me to be like, huh, maybe there is a thing there, right? Maybe there is an important distinction. I've got it wrong. My, my perception, my understanding, uh-huh. you know, is what the problem is. You know, uh, I went back after I read this story on the subject and, um, do you happen to have Olya Hercules? She's a Ukrainian food oh, writer yes. based I, in London. I met, her, I met her a few summers ago. Oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah. So her new book, Summer Kitchens has a beautiful, she has a beautiful essay on Borscht okay. in, in the book. And, um, you know, she writes about how it's eaten throughout the Caucasus, Iran, across Central Asia, to Kamkatchka in Russia. Mm. But um, she also says, you know, acknowledging all that, she's not afraid to claim borscht as Ukrainian. Yes. Right. Right. The fact that it may be seen everywhere. Yeah. But the actual practice of putting it together that way. And the significance, right. what it represents, it represents uh, family and um, nourishment and yep. just like how, what a deep connection it holds for Ukrainian people. Yep. It's true. Uh, it, that is, i i heard that too. Um, uh, and it's really fascinating because I, at the same time, I like a lot of this, a lot of this, like borscht is a beautiful example of what the, that land offers up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There, there's there's a sort of history and a very physical terroir thing happening. Yeah. Where do the beets grow? Where do those cattle graze? You know, and it's dairy. Sure. Cattle, that's where the sour cream uh, is from. Um, and that that piece to me is what I always find so fascinating in these discussions. Like, oh, no, well, the you know, this area and this is where we grew these types of things. And this is where these animals uh, were raised. Um, but. I, I am learning that that is actually just a slice of the discussion, right? This is about the experience of the people with this dish and what their history is and when they made it and, and where, you know, and that to me, I think that needs more consideration perhaps than I was giving it. Well, I think it's it's interesting too when you think about when you do have a dish like this that's considered a national dish, also how we picture it is a very fixed mm-hmm. thing right from 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 outside the culture but but there how in practice it takes different forms depending on where you are in the country um and i guess that goes back to what you were saying about the expression of terroir so because it's so much of the place mm-hmm. it reflects the the place in that very distinct way it well the, exactly and that to me, that makes a lot of sense, right? This, the the connection, right? The the reason why that, that Italian flag looks the way it does uh, is not for nothing, right? This is and about what that land offers up. Uh, and you know, when I was thinking about this, um, the disputed origins, right? Because. Um, yeah. Yeah, these these arguments happen all the time. And actually, when I, I read a lot of cookbooks, and um, I'm thinking about an Armenian one in particular last year, that they they just stated it blatantly, like clearly at the top, almost to kind of preempt any arguments. They're like, we're not laying claim to these dishes. Right, yes. We recognize, you know, they were like, don't yell at us, basically. <laughs> but so um, funny. It's like their version of a, a cultural acknowledgement. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> 
But in a similar vein, I, I noticed that um, India is seeking UNESCO recognition, but this time not in the cultural heritage sense, in the geographical indication status for basmati rice. Uh, and so that. Pakistan is is opposing this. And it also has economic implications because um, uh, the story I was reading uh, in The Guardian reported that uh, when when the Indian state of, of West Bengal was given the exclusive right to Dar- Darjeeling tea, mm-hmm. um, the price soared after 2011. Yeah. So so it has implications for exporters as well in, in a kind of deeper cultural sense. Yep. Much like Champagne and Dijon and Riesling and all of these things. Parma, ham, yeah. Right, right, right. right. Uh, and and there's like there's a slow food thing, right? Slow food has uh, that heritage list. I forget, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but essentially it's like... Yeah, the Ark. The, thank you, right? The Ark of Taste. Uh, yeah. It's like, it's like an endangered species list, uh, right? For, you know, or the protections around this and the 14 different kinds of basmati rice that are grown in... Yeah. The, uh, it is a fascinating thing. However, messy because of our attempt, like our attempt to assert it now that we have all jumbled ourselves around this planet, right? The homogenous pockets are not what they once were. Uh, I like that. Thanks for bringing that. I feel like there's more research to be done. Okay, Laura, we, uh, we are, we are still very much mid pandemic, um, but our restaurants are suffering. And so uh, the and, and winter is on its way here to us in Toronto. So uh, the we've seen these domes start popping up everywhere. These sort of like clear igloo is the vibe when I see it. Um, and their greenhouses and fire pits are you know are creeping up all over the place. Um, but the question is, uh, will it work? Can we do this? Um, I have a pal who had one installed on their patio with lots of excitement, but then they couldn't actually serve anybody because the indoor dining, uh, right? Because technically that was considered an indoor dining space. And so that was all shut down. Uh, but as we know, which I, I really do feel like everybody in the world is dealing with this, the moment to moment news about what isn't, isn't allowed and what isn't, is not designated. What is murky, right? Uh, so I am, what do you think? What do you think when you see them? Uh, do you think you want to go inside and sit down and have a meal? Honestly, no. No, no I, I I find the idea of like let's say a tent with like two open sides and maybe a fire pit nearby. Oh, like that sounds that sounds cozy. That sounds, right. you know. But no, I, I think that what kind of I find strange about the igloo style dining is um or the um the uh, snow what are they called snow pods the snow, snow pods, pods nice right the snow pods is um. I don't know. I mean, it's not out. It's not outdoor. It's not indoor. It's just kind of, and as you say, it's like, it's kind of murky with the health uh, regulations. And I know with the snow pods, um, they're planning that, you know, when, when one party leaves, then a, a fogger kind of sanitizes right. the bubble. Right. But to me, I, I kind of uh, feel like a true outside experience, even though it's, it's, you know, obviously we live in a cold climate uh, maybe is the way to go. I, I am wondering the same thing. Like, uh, it, it also like you have, they have one of these right on the patio. Uh, right. And they need this extra buffer of 20 minutes on either end to fog this thing. Uh, and I'm curious about this COVID killing fog yeah. that they have that we can ingest to some degree, right. Yeah. We can be in there right after it's been sprayed. 
But in my mind, I was like, well, why aren't we just ingesting it in, you know, like, why, you know, why aren't we using this in a more therapeutic sense? Uh, that I have, you know, there's lots of questions about this, this COVID battling fog uh, and what that means. Uh, and, and fascinating that we've, we've worked to generate that um, as opposed to potentially maybe focus on other innovations that are necessary at this moment. Yeah, 100%. And I feel a great need and desire to, to support you know, my local restaurants. Yes. Absolutely. Um, but honestly, um, that doesn't seem like the way I want to do it. And, and now imagining servers in wintertime, right. whether you're talking a snow pod or a tent, like dealing with, uh, snow banks and slush, and, uh, I don't, yeah. I, I'd much rather get curbside pickup from that establishment or a gift card. You know, another side that I find interesting about this kind of winterizing patios idea is, um, let's say outdoor heaters, just as an example, not a very, you know, not, not, um, as exciting, I guess, as a, as a fire pit, but one that's like probably the most common and, you know, not only the cost that it means for restaurateurs, like that they get their, you know, a few hundred dollars to over a thousand dollars to, to get these heaters, but, um, then also the environmental cost. And, um, I found it interesting, like the environmental think tank. Uh, Negawatt um, estimated that heating just an 800 square foot patio um, has the same causes the same emissions as a car uh, going around the earth three times. So it's like we have this cost, this human cost in terms of the um, the risk for for staff. And then you have this environment and then, you know, the actual cost to restaurateurs and then this environmental cost as well. It's this uh, that another piece of conversation actually is the sort of slide back on a lot of uh, physical sustainability measures that had been, you know, and, and understanding the, the, the waste and the disposal of containers, uh, the rate at which we are consuming those things yeah, uh, is hard. It's, it's super, super dangerous. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Right. And, and this is more of the same, even just the number, cause it's almost a full tank a night. I heard, right. Each one of those things goes through at least one full it's... tank of propane in a night. Yeah. It's wild. Uh, and that's a, that's a lot, uh, considering how many cat, how many patios, how many of these things, the fact that people have bought them for their own homes, right? Because now I think Amazon was the only place that has, has them now for the yeah, like, another maybe, shortage, another long, pandemic, long, like the Mason jars, right? Uh, <laughs> they, we can't get them. We can't get them. Um, but at the same time, I, like, I completely understand the need to do something. Yeah, for sure. And, and I also feel like, what do you think about this? That. To a certain degree, you know, we live in Canada, we live in, well, depending where we live in the country, you know, it's colder than in other places, but part of it is just kind of reconciling, just like being like, okay, this is where we live. It's cold and not expecting it to be as warm as it is inside of our apartments, you know, and just like dress well, uh, embrace the cold to a certain degree. Yep. Yep. And just go with it. If ever... If ever our, our our the metal our metal is was to be tested, this was like a great moment for that, right? And give me a fur-lined bench and a blanket yeah. uh, and warm a warm boozy thing. Like I'd be into it, man. I really would. Hey, uh, a bowl of borscht, yeah. a woolly blanket. <laughs> you're set. Done. Some sort of hot toddy of a, a thing or a piece of cake. I guess we'll sit with this, a boozy piece of cake <laughs> with a borscht and we're sorted with our outdoor dining. That's amazing. Uh, I love that. Well, listen, we have our fingers crossed uh, for this industry and for this winter. Uh, I will soon, I think, maybe go and try it just to see what the vibe is like in there. But um, 
But oh man, uh, let's see. Who knows? If you're enjoying our podcast, you can support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. Thanks for joining us, Laura. You can find Laura on social media and her handles will be in our show notes. You can follow me at Joshna Maharaj on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato and Dennis Coyne with original music by Dave Bell. Thanks for listening.